Easter has presented for us a, an interesting setup because uh, at Easter, what we're actually celebrating is the greatest spiritual victory ever, where Jesus died for our sins, um, and he was the perfect, uh, sinless, sacrificial lamb of God that, that laid down his life for us. And it, when we look at and we consider his death, the story didn't stop there because the story gets even better because he, it wasn't just that he died, although that's pretty impressive and that says a lot about his love for us um, and, and his, his heart towards us, that he would seek to bless us in that way. But it didn't stop there because three days later he rose from the grave, conquering, or proving that he had conquered sin and its consequence, death, and having new life himself, being resurrected and conquering death, it promises to us and shows us that we could have new life as well. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at some things that um, are kind of uh, related. And it's an interesting setup because tonight, we're going to be picking up where we left off in our series in Acts. We didn't teach it last Sunday because it was Easter Sunday. But we've been going through the book of Acts together. And Kyle already had you turn to Acts chapter 16. And what we're going to be looking at is sort of a power encounter between the forces of evil and the power and authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we are going to be looking at tonight. So Acts chapter 16, I trust you are already there. Um, Acts 16, we're going to be starting up at verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us. There were three others with Paul. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Kind of ironic considering their treatment, but um, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your power, your authority, your supremacy. And Jesus, we pray that as you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you would reveal yourself tonight, that you would give us a greater idea of who you are and what you're all about and the life that you're calling us to. And Jesus, we just pray that as we look into your word, that our ability to comprehend divine things would not rest on my own ability to articulate but Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us. We pray that our hearts would be open, that we would be receptive, and that you would speak, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, 
This might be breaking all the rules, but um, tonight I want to start off by um, talking about a serial killer. It's probably not the way you're supposed to start off a sermon, um, but I'm going to start off by talking about a serial, serial killer, a fictional one. And if you can, if you can, if you can like, um, if, if, if there was ever a likable serial killer, man, I'm so getting in trouble for all of this. It might be Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Anthony Hopkins played him in the movie The Science of the Lambs. He won an Oscar. Um, I was reading yesterday that I forget who it was, American Film Institute maybe, voted him the number one villain of all time. And, and uh, Anthony, I just, I just love the way that Anthony Hopkins played him. And um, that's, you know, and I can just see his face and hear his voice. That's some creepy stuff right there. And there's, there, in the book version, I don't think it was depicted in the movie, but in the book version, Clarice Starling, FBI agent Starling, asks Dr. Lecter a question. She says, what could have made you like this? What happened to you? And as I read Dr. Lecter's response, I wish I could do it as Anthony Hopkins doing Hannibal Lecter, but I can't, so I'm not even going to try. But this is his response. Why nothing has happened to me, Agent Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Agent Starling. It is never anybody's fault. Look at me, Agent Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Creepy, right? But kind of profound at the same time. And this exchange powerfully reflects the way our culture views and explains evil. In our, modern, in our modern Western mindset, everything has a natural cause and everything has a scientific explanation. So crime, violence, greed, racism, war must all have a natural cause. So what are, what are some of the natural causes that we come up with and the way that we explain it? It might be psychological factors, the way people are raised, the environments people were raised in. It's almost like if we can just figure out the natural cause, then we could actually try to fix it. Author, professor, self-described secular liberal Andrew Del Banco, um, he had some interesting things to say about our inability to account for evil. And this is from his book, The Death of Satan. And this is what he said. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources for coping with it. The evil that was always there is still there. But we got rid of the idea of sin and sinners. We got rid of the idea of the devil. And now we're absolutely astounded by the fact that there is clearly something beyond what we can manage or control here. But we have, but we have no way of dealing with it now. In cultures like ours, it's difficult to talk about the devil. It's difficult to talk about Satan. It's difficult to talk about the spiritual realm. Um, educated people can sometimes be very dismissive of anything that science can't measure and explain. And... For some, to believe in the devil, to believe in Satan, to believe in demons, to believe in evil spirits, it seems almost a little primitive, a little superstitious, a little bit backwards, or something that belongs just in folk folklore or horror movies. Some might put it on the same ridiculous level as believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. 
My wife and I were recently discussing how long do we play this game with our oldest daughter where she actually believes in the tooth fairy. She's losing some teeth and it's the, it's the best thing ever for her when the tooth fairy comes to visit. And of course, that's ridiculous, but it's fun for kids, right? So we do it. But to regard the demon, demons, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, all of that, to regard the spiritual realm in that way would be a serious mistake. C.S. Lewis in his classic, The Screwtape Letters, which sort of depicts letters written by Screwtape, who was a senior demon, letters written to the junior demon named Wormwood. Um, he, had, he, had, he records this, and, and he says this to Wormwood. Wormwood. This is Screwtape, the senior demon, speaking to Wormwood. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient, that's the, the object of their attention, um, you will not have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. And this is reading something like this, that other line from that other movie, The Usual Suspects, comes to mind, right? The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was, was making people believe that he didn't exist. But the, the spiritual realm is real. But the spiritual realm is often out of sight, and it's often out of mind, and we tend to ignore the spiritual realm. And culture, as we've already looked at, has already lost uh, its ability to account for evil. But the Bible doesn't have that problem. The Bible is not uh, similarly limited. The Bible does give an explanation. The Bible does have things to say to shed some light on the spiritual realm. Who is God? Who is Satan? What are angels? What are demons? And what is going on with all of this? And the Bible is a great resource for us to understand sort of uh, the rules of the game. The Bible helps us to see that within the spiritual realm and within spiritual warfare, the Bible shows sort of the guardrails for our understanding, but also in helping us understand not only just the power that Satan has and that demons have, but also the limitations that they have on their power as well. So the Bible is obviously a very great resource for us to help us understand these things. And it, it would, it would, it's almost like the devil is not that concerned that so much about him is revealed in Scripture I think more than not, he's actually hoping and counting on us not paying attention. So we should pay attention. Regarding our text, Paul and Silas, along with Timothy and Luke, they've just entered Philippi, and they've gone into this city, and they've already seen God do some incredible things. We've seen people come to know Jesus. We've seen that the gospel is making an impact. So it's obvious in the context of what's happening here that God is already at work and God is working and doing something, and, but also we see here that the devil is working as well. And so they're making their way, our text says, to the place of prayer. And they encounter the slave girl. Now they had never met the slave girl, but she knew exactly who they were. She had a spirit of divination uh, the text tells us, and this requires some explanation because um, when you look at the original wording there and how it was, tra it was translated as the spirit of div divination, but 
um, if you look at what is actually said, there's no reference point for us. If it was literally translated, it wouldn't make any sense and we might miss what's being communicated. But what it is literally saying, this spirit of divination, it's speaking of, it literally means that she has the spirit of a python. Now this is a, a mythical reference to the, this python that would guard the temple of Apollo. And um, this temple was considered the entrance to the underworld. And during the Roman Greco era, people would come from all over to seek advice from the priests and the priestesses of this temple. And the priests and priestesses, people would come to, to seek advice from them and they would go into the temple, seek inspiration uh, from the spirits there and be indwelt by the spirits and they would come out and convey a message to their inquirer. And, and they would typically behave quite wildly and weirdly um, they would speak in strange voices. Uh, first century writer Plutarch describes them as belly talkers because of the sound of their voices as a spirit spoke through them. So this slave girl is described as being under the influence of this python spirit. And like the priestesses and the priests of the temple of Apollo, this correlation is being made. Now, this is crazy stuff. This is not, you know, a gimmick on the Venice boardwalk. You know, that's even assuming that what you find on the Venice boardwalk is a gimmick. But this is serious stuff. And the text reveals in verse 16, it says that she brought her, her owners much gain. So her owners, her, these slave owners, those that owned her, they were essentially uh, her spiritual pimps using her to, to make money for themselves. And we see in verse 17, she's following Paul and Silas and she's, and she's crying out with a loud voice, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, Satan's strategy here is, is pretty obvious. If he can in any way create the perception of an alliance, it would not only benefit him and he would gain from that, but it would also hurt the work of the gospel. Because what we see is that Satan opposes the, redemption, the redemptive work of God. That's what he's all about. He's always opposing the redemptive working, work of God, and he's always seeking to distort. He'll provide distortions for us, and he'll always seek to provide a counterfeit to his work. So as he's seeking to create this alliance, it, it sort of portrays um, Paul and Silas and the work of the gospel in this uh, in, in this related way to the work of the devil because he's in, he's in competition with God. Isaiah chapter 14 records that Lucifer, he says of himself, I will make myself like the most high. That's his whole thing. He, 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 his heart is filled with pride and he, and he wants to elevate himself to the same level as God. He sees himself in competition with God. Now the interesting thing here about the statement that this slave girl makes where she says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. It's interesting that Scripture uh, records Satan as being a liar and the father of lies. But here, this evil spirit is making a true statement. So yes, he is a liar, and yes, he is the father of lies, but here's what we've got to be careful of. He's also a truth teller. And whatever he can mix lies with the truth. This is something that we see him do often, and he will do that. And so we need to be wary of, of his tactics in this way. They really were 
servants of the Most High God. But he was seeking to, to use this association for his own good. And it says there in verse 18, I love this, it says, Paul was greatly annoyed. And, and I love that it shows his humanness. You know, it, it, it was, I guess, I mean, the impression I get is that it was starting to piss him off. It's, it's not like, you know, he was like, you know, how we might portray him uh, or have this idea of, you know, the Apostle Paul, all saintly and all of that, and, and, and dealing with the situation with a calm, cool attitude or anything like that. But I love that it shows his humanness here as he's greatly annoyed. And he says to the Spirit, I command you the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And this causes her masters to lose it. They have just lost their revenue stream. They have just lost their ability to profit off of this evil spirit inhabiting this poor girl. And this was as bad as a, as a think of a, a fisherman losing his boat. The boat sinks. I mean, you know, just how out of his mind would, would the fisherman be to lose his boat? In that same way, these owners of this slave girl, they've lost their ability to, to profit. They've lost their revenue stream. And they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the rulers and their magistrates, verse 19 and 20. And it's interesting that their problem uh, differed from their official complaint. They didn't raise the official complaint that, you know, he messed up our situation, our business plan, and we had this ability to make money, and they came alongside and they destroyed our business. That's not their official complaint. But we see here what they're saying, and they actually go racial and they go political. Verse 20, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. See, here's a situation. Philippi was a Roman colony and they were portraying Paul and Silas as anti-Rome. And so the crowds attacked them and they stripped them naked to humiliate them and they beat them with rods. And the rulers and the magistrates there, those that beat them, in Latin, the word for them is lictors, lictors, or lictors. And this is where we get our expression, taking our licks. This is where Timex got their marketing slogan that they used for many years, takes a licking and keeps on ticking. That's, that's where we get that from. And they were thrown in prison. And the story goes on, and, and it has a pretty cool ending, and, and we'll look at some of that next week. But as we consider our text and, and the focus of our study tonight, it's just sort of crazy when we, when we see what's going on here. As I mentioned, there's much about the spiritual realm that is misunderstood, that people don't know about, that they're unaware of, how it's overlooked in so many ways, and the modern Western world has explained it away or denied it completely. But within the Christian community, we often ourselves don't always get it right. We often go to one of two extremes. Either we um, believe in it intellectually or we believe in it theologically, but functionally we live in denial of it. It's just so out of sight, out of mind. The other extreme we go to sometimes is, is uh, we make too much of it. We see a demon under every rock and we sort of emphasize it in ways that are disproportionate and are unhealthy. So we should not be ignorant of the demonic realm, but nor should we be pre preoccupied with it. C.S. Lewis, again, he addresses these two extremes, and he says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
they themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And so what I want to do is tonight, as we sort of look at this, I want to provide a bit of a framework so that we can understand the spiritual realm a little bit better and understand our text a little bit better. So we can sort of make sense of what, exi- exi- what is actually going on below the surface. We, we get the account of you know, the, the encounter with a slave girl who's possessed by a demon and Paul casts her out in Jesus' name, but I want to dig into that a little bit here. My hope is that as we, as we understand their power, that we would respect them in, in, in a healthy kind of a way, that we would recognize that they are not, demons are not something to, to take lightly, but I also want to make sure that we don't give them more credit than they are due. So how are we to understand this demonic power that she has? Well, we already know that God is God and there is no other God. There is no deity, no power or force like him. My kid, is, my kid recently asked me, who created Jesus? And it completely blew her mind when I told her, no one created Jesus. He always was and he always will be. He never began, and he will never end. And she just gave me this puzzled look on her face, and I don't think her little mind can wrap, can, 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 can completely comprehend it yet. But so, so that's God, eternal, divine attributes, omnipotence, which means he's all-powerful, omniscience, which means he's all-knowing. Um, he's omnipresent as well, which means he's everywhere at the same time. Now, Satan, on the other hand, does not possess these divine attributes. And I think we make a mistake when we sort of view uh, Satan as the equal but opposite counter to God. Satan is not yin to God's yang. He's not God's evil twin. He's not the equal but opposite in terms of his abilities and powers. But he is an extremely powerful angel. And he's a leader of angels. And probably we can sort of conclude that he's probably on, this, on, on the same level and the same par with uh, Michael, the archangel. And when Satan rebelled against God, he was ultimately cast out of heaven. And he took a number of the angels with him. Uh, there's some indication in scripture that it may have been up to a third of the angels. And now these angels that Satan took with him, these angels we now call demons. So it's helpful for, under, uh, for us to understand how Lucifer is not comparable to God in any way, but I think it's also helpful to understand that as demons are created beings and as angels are com- created beings, it's likely that angels and demons are um, comparable in the sense of their abilities and their powers. Sometimes what we see in scripture of what's depicted about angelic activity we can sort of flip the script on that a little bit and see it in the negative for the demons. So we know that angels are not everywhere present. We know that angels do not possess divine attributes. In the same way, demons do not possess any of these divine attributes either. They're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. They're not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. And they're not omnipresent. They're not everywhere at the same time. The difference between demons and angels is that demons are evil and they're serving Satan, and angels are good and they're serving serving God. So, 
if demons and evil spirits do not possess these divine attributes, such as omniscience, being all-knowing, how is this slave girl a fortune teller? How are we to understand what's being communicated? The implication being that the spirit that indwells her gives her the ability to foresee and, for, and foretell the future. So it sort of begs the question, can demons, can evil spirits predict the future or not? And the answer is, it depends. Let me explain. I know that's everyone's favorite answer, right? But let me explain. About predicting the future, they can only predict to you what is not known to you. But that does not mean that what they are predicting is not known. Does that make sense? Try to track with me on this. They can only predict to you what is not known to you, but that does not mean that what they predict is not known. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, Amelia, my youngest daughter, she gets so excited uh, when I tell her that mommy's coming home. And she gets this hopeful look on, this, on her face and this big smile, and she gets all hyper and excited, and she starts stomping her feet like this, and she gets so excited that mommy's coming home. And then a minute or two goes by, and the door opens, and in walks my wife, and Amelia looks at me like I'm a freaking genius. And she looks at me and says, <gasps> and she looks at me, she looks at mommy, and she looks at me, and she's so excited. You know, like, what is the special power that daddy has to predict that, that mommy is coming home? So from her perspective, I predicted that my wife was about to walk in the door, did I not? But what she doesn't know is that I just looked out the window and I saw my wife pull up. <laughs> or that my wife sent me a text saying, I'll be home in two minutes, or whatever it is. And so that's how we are to understand this concept of demons and evil spirits' ability to predict the future. I love that I just made myself comparable to a demon, but hey, whatever. <laughs> regarding other aspects of knowledge, if that's the predictive piece, regarding other aspects of knowledge, demons would know what is already past and what can be observed. So that's, in that sense... What they're talking about is something that is still already known because it is past or it is observable. Um, this week, I was sitting in my office, uh, and some of you know I don't actually have an office. I have a coffee shop that I frequent. Um, I see many of you there, and I always love that. It's always a nice break in my day. Um, but I was sitting in my office, sitting in my coffee shop, and I was studying, and I'm just getting into it. I'm in the zone and all that kind of stuff, and then my phone lights up, and it's Pastor Casey. And he's just like, hey, I can hear his voice. Hey, what are you listening to? And uh, he wasn't with me. But he sends me this text, because I have my earbuds in. He says, what are you listening to? Now, is Casey omniscient? Does he know everything? Is he maybe possessed by an evil spirit? Officially, no, he's not. <laughs> but what it was was, he happened to drive by, and I was sitting, next, I was sitting near the front of the, of the coffee shop, and he saw me sitting right by the door with my earbuds in, and he sends me this text, probably to try to creep me out a little bit, because he knew what I was studying. And uh, so in that, it's, it's an example of how it's easy to make an impression on people when you reveal something about them that they didn't know you knew. So it's possible that... A situation like with this slave girl, you know, she would have, just to use a ridiculous example, as she's indwelt by this evil spirit, she would have the capacity to tell people what they ate for breakfast, what they did the day before, 
past events in that, in that kind of a sense. So there's this, super, this, this perception of a supernatural knowledge that she has. And again, if it's something that's predictive, it's because they had knowledge of something that was already happening that was unknown to the person that they can tell, and from that person's perspective, they are predicting the future. So demons have the capacity to know what is already revealed in some form. But let me be absolutely clear that they are not omniscient or have the ability to predict the future. And we are not to take them lightly, but this is just one example of the limitations of their power and their ability. And you can even see the deceptive nature of this. You know, I can just, I can just sort of see it playing out right now. You know, the devil talking to his demons, tell them this, tell them that, and they will believe in you. They'll believe in the power that you have. We can get our hooks into them that way. But they're not omniscient. They are not all-knowing. Their power is limited. But as Paul casts out the evil spirit from this slave girl, what it does for us is it reveals once again their limited power and how at the name of Jesus, this evil, spirit, this evil spirit comes out of this girl. It wasn't Paul's power. It was the power, the power was in the authority of Jesus Christ, whose power and authority very clearly outweighed the power and authority of the evil spirit indwelling the girl. So that means for us then, we can conclude and we can see, I think it's observable that this wasn't much of a power struggle at all. It wasn't a power struggle at all. It was definitely a power encounter, but it wasn't much of a struggle. Jesus and the power and authority of Jesus Christ is supreme. He has established his, his preeminence over all of these things. And the reality is, is that Jesus defeated the powers of darkness on the cross. And because of that, the demons know their place. We see kind of a similar situation depicted in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 4, and it says, In the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? That's who he's speaking to. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons, James chapter 2 says that, that, that the, uh, the demons believe in God and they shudder. Or another translation says they believe in God and tremble. So then the question is, if they are defeated and they recognize Christ's authority over them, how are we to understand uh, why they still fight? And even to consider that is an interesting question. But it really just boils down to the fact that they want to bring as many people as they possibly can down with them. They want to blind people to the gospel. They want to oppose and disrupt the work of God in people's lives. They want to keep people in bondage to things that would hinder them from coming to God. They just like to mess with us and like to mess with, 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 with what God is seeking to do. And as we're seeking to step out and to serve God, there are times that we can encounter spiritual warfare. So we're not to be naive. 1 Peter 5.8 gives us this warning. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, ar prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now we read passages like that and it, it 
if we're paying attention, it's just not the way we typically think. Most of us, I don't think, we walk around thinking about this, the level of spiritual warfare that is being waged around us or even the ways that it's affected us. Um, a number of years ago, actually it was right when we were preparing to, to plant Collective Church, I was encountering all kinds of physical stuff and I had, I had extreme nerve pain that I was dealing with and it ended up putting me in a wheelchair for a while just so that I could be mobile. And it was just kind of weird and uncanny what was going on as, I, as we were now stepping out in faith to plant this church. And I would get the question all the time, do you think it's spiritual? And that's not a dumb question, and I don't have a problem with the question, but it was, it was stuff that people would often ask just because of how odd and weird it all was. And the reality is, I think that whether Satan and, and demons and the spiritual realm, whether something that is manifested in real life is induced by the devil or not, is not so much the point. It actually might be the wrong question. Actually, I guess there's nothing wrong with the question. Is it spiritual? I would say there's an element to it for sure. I think what's typically being asked when we ask that is, 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 is Satan the source of this? Is there a spiritual source to your affliction? And, I, and, I, and, and we don't want to presume to, to make a, these assessments and these judgments and, and these declarations about something being spiritual in nature and satanic or demonic in nature. Um, but I think because we know that the devil hates our guts and he goes around like a roaring lion seeing, seeing who, who he can um, devour uh, and mess with people, I think it's safe to say that at the very least he doesn't leave us, he always takes advantage of an opportunity to kick us while we're down. And if he can exploit our weaknesses, whether they be physical or whether they be spiritual, it and I don't, I'm not saying that I, this is the case every single time. We see Jesus healing people in the New Testament and he just straight up heals them and he doesn't indicate in every case that there was a spiritual source behind how this, this person's affliction. But I think that as we think about things, we should be open up our eyes and we should be a little bit more mindful of the fact that, that let's not just completely divorce and separate our realm from the spiritual realm. And we need to be mindful of the adversary that we have. We sometimes think that we're going to be fine because he has bigger fish to fry and he's going to leave us alone. Who am I? The devil's not concerned about me. I mean, yeah, I'm a Christian and everything. And I love Jesus and I'm trying to make a difference for Jesus and the gospel has impacted my life and my life to the, trans to the transformation that has taken place is a testimony and is a witness to people of the transformative power of Jesus Christ. But I'm just small potatoes. They're not that worried about me. I think sometimes that we think that. But as we look at scripture, what we see is that demonic forces and satanic forces were not just or only interested in people of stature, people of, that had social status, people that were uh, considered important or uh, this perception of importance within the kingdom of God. We see just regular people falling victim to spiritual warfare and demonization and, and spiritual activity. So scripture reveals that he'll mess with everyone. And this is why. He will mess with us because he hates us, because he hates God, and God loves us. So whether you know Jesus or not, the devil, in some degree, and in some way, you have a target on your back. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
He wants to take you out. He wants to affect you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he wants to keep you that way. Because we are loved by God and God made a way for us to come to him. He made a way for us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the devil will do whatever he can to destroy the work of God in our lives. So there is this demonic realm. Their goal is to make us slaves. This slave girl already was enslaved. But she was a slave in another sense as well. And the devil will seek to influence us and keep us locked in our sins, keep us far from God. And you might be thinking, well, that's fine and dandy, but trust me, I'm no slave. And I want to say this lovingly, but also very clearly, that if you don't know Jesus, you are enslaved. If you don't know Jesus, you are enslaved. If your master is not Jesus, you have false masters. So what is it that is mastering us? What is it that we are living for? We need to be very, very careful to not underestimate the demonic realm and the role of that in the world. You don't have to be indwelt by an evil spirit to be enslaved by Satan. You think, I'm not possessed. I'm not telling people's fortunes. I'm not screaming at dudes walking up the road. But you don't have to be indwelt by an evil spirit to be enslaved by Satan. Check this out. According to Scripture, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is described as the deceiver of the whole world. And then in John 14, it says he is the ruler of this world. So, if Jesus is not our master, something else is. If we are not free in Christ, we are enslaved by Satan to some degree. There's no third position. It's, it's definitely an either-or situation. Like Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. So speaking of this, the binary nature of whom we serve, Pastor and theologian uh, Sam, Stor Sam Storms has this to say. This forever shatters the illusion of neutrality. The idea that so-called good people who are not Christians are neither for God nor for Satan, are neither in God's kingdom nor in Satan's. The fact is all people, young and old, male and female, belong to one of two kingdoms. The kingdom of light or the kingdom of of darkness. If one is not in Christ, one is in the power of the devil. Even if there is no visible, sensible awareness of being in the devil's grip, thus, not to serve God is to serve Satan, whether one is conscious of it or not. The devil is relentless. He will present all kinds of things that appear desirable to us, to entice us, to trip us up. We, can, we see that played out all the way back in the Garden of Eden, where we see the serpent pulling the same tricks with Adam and Eve, presenting something that is enticing to us, something that is desirable to us. And, and, and here's the thing with sin. I'm, I, I get it. Sin is fun. It can be fun. It's got horrible consequences, 
But if there was nothing enticing about it, if there was nothing attractive about it, none of us would sin. And so the devil will seek to do whatever he can to sort of draw us in and to bring us into captivity. But it's not just sin and temptation. He'll do everything and anything he can to mess us up. It might be through sin and temptation. It might be through other circumstances. It might be through physical afflictions. It it might be a variety of things. But this is our adversary. This is our enemy. So I want to ask you guys, what are you in bondage to? What are you enslaved by? The good news is that freedom is found in Christ. And there is no greater freedom a person can have than for the Lord to be their master. A lot of people would view serving Christ and making Jesus their master as just another form of bondage, another form of slavery. I'm not giving my life to Christ. I want to do whatever I want. I don't want to be enslaved by all these rules. I don't want to be enslaved by this, this way of life. I can't, I can't be enslaved by the things that God is calling, calling me to. But we should see that in ourselves, we are, all, we have this, we are all like the slave girl, that we are enslaved in different ways, in some cases more ways than one, and we can serve false masters. And there are people, and I was one of them, that refused to surrender their life to Jesus. I, I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I didn't become a Christian and a follower of Jesus until my early 20s. And I knew a lot about Christianity. I knew a lot about the Bible. And so I felt I was making a decision based on knowledge. I thought, no, I get the Jesus thing. I get the Bible thing. And I'm just not interested. I'm just, I don't want to live my life that way. And here's the thing. I thought I was free. I thought I was free. What I didn't realize is that I was in bondage already but it was only in Christ that I would experience true freedom. And maybe that describes you. Maybe you misunderstand the freedom that he actually offers. Maybe you, under, maybe you misunderstand who he is and what he's all about and the life that he wants to give you. Maybe you do think that Christianity, Christianity is nothing but slavery. But doing whatever we want and fulfilling every urge that we have is not freedom at all. Doing whatever we, will, whatever we want and fulfilling all of our urges is not freedom. It's slavery in its clearest form. We experience true freedom when we have the ability to do things differently. Where we don't just go on autopilot doing whatever we want, giving into our urges. True freedom is expressed and true freedom is lived out when we actually have the ability to do things differently and Jesus Christ offers us that freedom he offers us a different way like my wife can tell you this um, but you know like when I swipe my phone and nothing happens right I get a little bit nuts over something like that because wait I'm swiping you Come on, be swiped. Like, happen. The screen is supposed to change, or I press the button on my phone. 
I, I get a little bit nuts. And it's freedom in that moment to swipe and not have the phone follow its command and for me to go, oh, it's okay. I'll just try it again. <laughs> that is freedom because I get in bondage to stupid, stupid things like that. But you understand what I'm saying? Like if I swipe the phone and it doesn't work and I freak out, it's like, no, bondage. You're enslaved. You freak out because of this thing. But true freedom is being able to respond in a different way, and Jesus offers us a different way. Serving Jesus is freedom because he is a master too, but he's a good master. He's not like the earthly masters of the slave girl who sought to take advantage of her and use her. He's not like the devil. He is a good master. Satan is a false master. He's a distortion. He's a counterfeit of God. He wanted to be like the Most High. We already read that. And he wants us to serve him. He wants us to worship him. And he wants us to do his will. So as we think about Satan and God in contrast, Satan enslaves people. Jesus delivers people. Satan uses people. Jesus saves people. Satan seeks to kill. Jesus came to give us life. Satan is defeated, and Jesus is victorious. It's just the reality of it. So the question is, whom will we serve? Or if I may take the liberty, no pun intended, to ask you, whom will you serve? You might think, I'm not enslaved to do the devil's will. Well, the Bible says you are if you don't know Jesus. The choice is set before us. Will we choose Jesus and his kingdom and the freedom he offers? Or will we stay stuck in this enslavement that we experience when we don't know Jesus? Think about it. And let's pray.